All right. Well, it's good to be with you today. I, uh, I missed you last week. I really did. I sat in my house and I paced back and forth thinking to myself, pastors ought not cancel church. Um, and they ought not, but, but they ought. Uh, so that's what happened. Um, <laughs> uh, today's gospel text is from, the chap- uh, from Mark chapter 1. And in this text, Jesus is calling his very first disciples, a group of men who will play this incredibly important role in his ministry uh, and the work that Jesus sets out to do in all of the Gospels. They will be his traveling companions, his confidants, his messengers, and eventually, after his resurrection, his apostles will be the people who lead the church. They will write books of the, Bi- of the New Testament, of the Bible, and spread the message of Jesus as far west as Spain and as far east as probably India. At least that's what people are saying. And by people, I mean people who are smarter than me. Uh, and they do all of that, every bit of it, in their relatively short lifetimes. From this moment of call to that is in just one, uh, the span of just one generation, one lifetime. These disciples are going on quite an adventure, aren't they? And like Bilbo Baggins, they have no idea. They have no clue what's ahead of them. And also like Bilbo, when Jesus first finds them, they are in an out-of-the-way place. They They are in the northernmost part of the Judean territory, a region called the Galilee which, is surra- which gets its name from the Sea of Galilee. Surprise, surprise. Today, this region sits at the intersection of Israel, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. So it's a cross-section of the world. But in Jesus' day, it was a very remote, somewhat forgotten part of Judea. And Jesus is up there because he has begun his public ministry. He has recently been baptized in the River Jordan by this weird, eccentric guy called John the Dunker, if you want to take that language literally, or John the Baptist. He has come out of this period of prayer in the desert, uh, and, in, and then he goes to the most weird, the weirdest place you could possibly go to begin your public ministry. He, he goes to the Galilee, and he begins to preach what, what Mark calls the good news of God or the gospel of the kingdom. This is what Jesus is preaching. Jesus has begun uh, preaching in this remote part of Judea, after this long period of silence in the Hebrew imagination. You see, Jesus is preaching this gospel of the kingdom, and when he's going around preaching it, what that calls to mind for all of the Hebrew people who hear him is the the words of the prophets of Israel, who had long before promised that there was coming a day when God would set the world right. That Israel, who lived so long under the thumb of political powers that surrounded them, like Egypt and Babylon and Rome, would one day be freed from those political powers. At least this was the hope of the people in the, in the region. And when Jesus is preaching this good news of the kingdom, many in his audience understood that to mean that Jesus was saying that this project of, this project of renewal, this new thing that God was going to do with his people, was about to kick off. That's what that language means. It's kind of thick with political ramifications in this time. And if this kingdom of God project is going to begin, and if Jesus is going to be the head of this project, this new thing that God is doing, he's going to need to gather some disciples to his side. He's going to need to find some followers. But instead of going to the center of power, 
heading down to Jerusalem and finding some well-educated, gifted young men as his first disciples, he does the exact opposite. It's kind of like Jesus is just walking around the Galilee and sees some guys fishing and goes, oh, I guess they'll do. And so he calls out to these followers, these young Jewish men. We call them men. They were probably no more than boys to our minds. And he calls to these fishermen with a fishing analogy. And I will make you, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, right? This is what he says. And the text tells us that both Andrew and his brother Simon, who will later be the apostle Peter, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, both immediately, they drop their life's work right then and there, and they walk away from everything they know and everyone they know, and they follow Jesus. This is what the text tells us. Now, usually, when we hear this passage, it sounds like a great act of faith on the part of these disciples, doesn't it? Usually, it sounds like that. That they saw Jesus, and that they like, immediately had this epiphany of who he was, and then they, and that they were struck to the heart. Like they repented of their sins and they professed Jesus as Lord and they, in this heroic act of faith, they just began to follow him. This is kind of how we think of it when we read it, but this is not how it happened. Uh, I want to propose to you today that this, that is not at all actually what's happening in this text of scripture. There's actually something a little different at work here. I think these guys, if you ask me honestly, had no clue what it was they were signing up for when they dropped their nets to follow Jesus. In fact, I think they were completely confused about what it was Jesus was actually asking of them. I think they got Jesus wrong, and that's why they left their nets and went to follow him. You see, I think they believed that Jesus was either a great prophet or maybe even anointed leader, which he was, like Moses to lead Israel out from under the fist of foreign oppression and begin to establish this new era of political and religious independence with the people of God. So in some sense, their expectations lined up with what Jesus thought. But what you need to know is they, they conceived of this almost purely in a political, this earthly sense. And you can understand why they thought this way, right? They were oppressed and occupied people. They had all of the prophets saying constantly that there was coming a day when Israel would be free. And they were just constantly on the lookout, especially in Jesus' day, for a Messiah, a deliverer, and an anointed one who would come and usher that space in. And so when Jesus comes out of the desert like a new Moses and he is preparing to lead God's people into a kind of new exodus and he's using this language... When they hear that, it makes sense to them, right? They resonate with all the Old Testament prophets that talked about a great renewal, a great revolution of the kingdom of God that was going to spring up. And they, but what, what the one thing that the prophets said would precede this time of renewal, this great um, revival of God's kingdom in the earth that would tamp down all the principalities and powers and all the controlling empires of the world and would raise up Israel. The one thing that all of the prophets said would precede that was a time of great judgment, of great judgment. When the nations who had oppressed Israel and, the, and those who were complicit in that oppression, even, even Hebrew people who were complicit in that oppression, would be judged. All the prophets said this. You see, when Jesus calls these guys to be his disciples, I really think that they thought that they were being called to go bust some heads. 
In fact, this is what they thought Jesus was saying when he said, I will make you fishers of men. We're not used to hearing that language in that way, but I think that's what he's saying. And I think that way because if you hear that that metaphor of a a fisher of men, it's used in the Old Testament. It's used twice, actually, in the Old Testament. And every time it is used, this metaphor of fishing is always used as a picture of judgment. Interesting, right? In Jeremiah 16, this is what Jeremiah says with the same imagery. He says, I am now sending you for my fishermen, says the Lord. And, and they shall catch them. And afterwards, I will send for you many hunters, and they shall hunt them from the mountains and hills. And then in Amos, Amos uses the same image again. He picks it up in Amos 4. Here's what Amos says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mount of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring me something to drink. You know, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, The Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with fish hooks, even the uh, with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. This leads the new, these passages of scripture and the allusions to it that Jesus is use, uses here when he invites these Judean boys to be fishers of men leads the scholar Richard Hayes to conclude that these disciples probably thought that Jesus was calling them on a mission of judgment. This is what, Jesus, this is what they believed Jesus was calling them to. And we see that they believed this in other places in scripture as well. If you go in your mind with me to Luke chapter 9, the gospel of Luke chapter 9, James and John, the sons of Zebedee from this passage, are mad at a group of, surprise, surprise, Samaritans from the Amos passage because Jesus has told them to go ahead of him in the Galilean region, which was adjacent to Samaria, and to find a place for him to stay in a Samaritan Samaritan village. And this Samaritan village rejects Jesus and his disciples And James and John, probably resonating with this Amos passage, turn to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, let's call down fire. That's what you asked us to do, right? (laughs) That's, let's light these cows up, is what they say in short. And Luke is quick to tell us that Jesus rebukes them, right? He says, this is functionally like, this is a misunderstanding of what what I've called you as my disciple to do. But I say all of this to to show you that when Jesus called these disciples in Mark chapter 1, they had literally no idea what they were being called to do. You can understand why they were confused, right, based on their understanding of the scriptures, but they were completely clueless. And Jesus, in this passage, seems totally fine with it. Totally fine that they are clueless. Totally fine that they will completely and utterly misunderstand him over and over and over again in the gospel texts. He knows that they don't know who he really is, that they have no idea what is going to happen to them along the way. He knows that their youthful lust for battle, apparently, uh, is going to be transformed over time into hearts of mercy that the inherent racism that they bear in their hearts towards Samaritans, and make no mistake, it was just full-blooded full racism, is all it was, is going to be healed into compassionate hearts that long to see the Samaritans come into the kingdom of God as brothers and sisters. This is going to happen to these disciples. 
that their desire to judge the nations and take up arms against foreign powers will be transformed into a deep missionary love that longs to see the nations of the earth, every tribe and tongue, every ethnos, stand in the light of God's kingdom. That's what they do. That's how they're transformed. And Jesus knows that these young disciples have no idea that the judgment they are so hungry to see fall upon God's enemies will, in fact, fall. But it will fall upon the shoulders of Jesus himself. Because the heartbeat at the center of the universe is one of co-suffering love, not vengeful retribution. The disciples will learn all of this and more as they follow Jesus over the course of his ministry. But at the beginning of the story in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is, is content to leave them sit with their assumptions, as abominable as some of them are. He does not expect them to know everything. He does not expect them to have their lives in order. He does not expect them to be emotionally stable. He does not expect them to have a healthy moral standard that they live by. He just invites them to follow him. That's all he does. And they do. Thanks be to God. And as the story progresses, the transformation of their lives comes right along with their following of Jesus. At this moment, Jesus is just content to invite them on that journey. Now, what does all this mean for us, right? I think, if you press me, I think we are like them. I think our stories uh, map very closely to the stories of the disciples. Not that we are all hungry for literal political revolt this, this evening. Uh, if that is you, will you see me after church? <laughs> I would like to talk to you. Um, if you got in a fist fight at the caucus last week, again, we need, to, we need to sit down and have a pastoral conversation. But here's how I think we are like them. Jesus invites us to be his disciples, and we have no idea what's going to happen to us either when we say yes to that invitation. Being a disciple of Jesus is not about believing some propositional truth. It's not simply about adopting a moral or ethical system of belief, though those things come over time. It is most certainly not about voting a certain way. When you take Jesus up on his offer as a follower of his, as a kingdom disciple, we are taking him up on an offer of a journey of transformation, a journey of becoming, a, a journey of exploration of the human heart and of intimacy with the creator of the universe. Jesus knows where he is leading us, but we do not. The author and philosopher Dallas Willard is a guy who you'll hear us quote a lot in this church, but Dallas defines what it means to be a disciple this way. He says, discipleship is being with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become like uh, what that person is. An apprentice of Jesus is a person who is learning from him how to lead their life as he would lead their life if he were they. When Jesus calls us to, to this kind of discipleship, this kind of apprenticeship, 
we are taking him up on an invitation to a journey of transformation by which we are seeking to, to live our lives the way that Jesus would live our lives if he was in our shoes. And that journey will inevitably go in all kinds of different directions. But if we actually uh, walk with him and do what he does, learning to uh, allow him to lead our lives with the help of God's spirit, we can't help but be changed by that experience. The journey will be one that is difficult at times, but ultimately is one in which we will grow and change and become more and more full of God's love and grace. It's not easy. It's not predictable. It's not safe. But it will be a journey of transformation. And it will be about becoming more loving, more gracious, more kind. It will be about surrendering our hearts to a God who longs for our hearts to be whole and complete. Here's an example of how this might happen, if you pressed me. Many of us don't know when we, uh, when we began following Jesus that he would be calling us out of shame. This is something Jesus wants to call us out of. You see, we all carry shame in one way, shape, or form. We have corners of our lives that we try naturally to keep hidden from other people. Maybe it's something you did or do. Maybe it's something that was done to you. Maybe it is an unhealthy pattern in your life, some addiction that you keep hidden that just feels dirty and dark. It's just like this little secret that you keep in the corner. And so what do we do because of shame? We just like throw a blanket over that thing in the corner and we try to pretend that it's not over there. But when Jesus invites us to follow him, he shows us his grace and he shows us that his grace covers all the dark corners of our lives, not just some of them. And because of that grace, we are invited to find, hopefully, some mature and trusted uh, people, some other followers of Jesus who can help us open our lives up, who will walk with us through those dark things and can help us to find freedom and healing in that place. And so I want to just speak pastorally and encourage you today We are all in need, every one of us, of three to five trusted and mature Christian people who we can open up our lives to, all of our lives. People with whom you can bring your whole self to light in God's grace. We all need this. A truth in the kingdom of God is that one of the primary ways we open our lives up to the transforming work of the Spirit is by opening our lives up to other people in healthy, appropriate ways, okay? Not just all willy-nilly, but in healthy, appropriate ways. And I pray often that this church would be a place like that, where you would be able to find healthy spiritual friendships with people whom you can share the whole of your life and the whole of your story, people that will walk with you and engage with you in that story, who will pray for you, That's just one example of the ways in which Jesus leads us to transformation. It's just one way. There's a myriad of other ways that God will lead us in in this journey of transformation. When we begin this journey of discipleship to Jesus, none of us know where it's going to lead, but we can have faith 
that Jesus does. And we can trust that he will lead us in the way we're supposed to go. We can know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And although discipleship will often mean confronting things within our own hearts that are less than flattering, that are even a bit scary, we follow a good shepherd who wants only for our freedom and our flourishing. These first disciples that were called, Andrew, Simon, James, and John, did not know that Jesus was going to confront their lust for battle, right, when he first called them. But he eventually, when Peter, even when Jesus is being taken off (laughs) to be crucified, and Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the guy, Jesus goes, Peter, (laughs) we've been working on it. And he picks up his ear and he puts it back on the guy. Like we've been, this has been three years, my man. (laughs) Confronting Peter's lust for battle, right? And his desire to drop the hammer of judgment on all of God's enemies. Here's what I find most fascinating. Nearly all of these guys, when they finish their race of discipleship, do not end up ending other people's lives. They end up laying down their own. There could be no more thorough transformation of a human heart than that. And what I want you to know today is that Jesus wants to do that same work in every one of us, in you and in me. We resist it because we don't trust all these that Jesus is good. But he is, and he can be trusted. And by his spirit, as you follow him, as his apprentice, close on his heels, you can know that the work that the spirit is doing in and through you is good work, not to unmake you, but to remake you into the person that God had had in his mind when you were born. To step into the fullness of who he created you to be, to be the person that Jesus would be if he were in your shoes. Now, none of this is perfect, right? We never do it perfectly. The journey of both inward healing and outward healing and transformation is never a straight line, ever. There are fits and starts, seasons of deep healing and transformation, right? There are seasons like that, of deep healing and transformation, But there are also seasons where our hearts get knocked around a bit by life or by circumstances or by our own mistakes. Sometimes there are seasons where we just neglect our own souls. We do that too. But if we follow Jesus, if we follow him closely, he is going to lead us on a journey, a great adventure. And you and I will be the better for it. And not just you and I, but our families and our friends and our city and the world. And just in case you were curious if this is one of the central things we long to see happen in and through our church, Des Moines Anglican, I would like to read you our mission statement. (laughs) Like a real good pastor. Uh, Des Moines Anglican is a church seeking together to become a healthy expression of God's kingdom in Des Moines, The central invitation of Jesus is for all people to follow him. Thus, to be his follower is to take Jesus up on his invitation to share in his wonderful, loving, gracious, and healing way of life.
So, even though we don't know where this thing's going to lead, and anyone in this room has, who has followed Jesus for four, more than five minutes, and I'm sure many of you who have followed Jesus for, more, for longer than I've been alive can attest to the fact, right, that like, this is going to go places, and I don't know all of where it's going to go. But we can trust our Savior and our Lord. And we can trust that the uh, restoring, healing, renewing work, the, renewal, the work of renewal that he wants to do in each of our hearts is good work. And so I will ask you, in as clear of language as I can, would you let him do it? If you're a follower of Jesus in this place, would you let him do it? If you are not a follower of Jesus in this place, the invitation to you is the same as it was to the disciples, an invitation of followership. And you can take him up on that offer, and you don't need to know a thing. You just need to follow. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we love you. And we thank you that you've called us here together today. We thank you that when Jesus calls us, he does not call us with expectations of perfection or understanding. He does not have any agenda other than to be with us and to allow his love and his grace into our lives. And so Jesus, if you're in this place and you want to do this with me, you can do this. Just put your palms up in a sign of reception. Would you help us to be people who can receive that love and grace? Would you help us to receive that ministry of renewal that, that the Holy Spirit wants to do in each of our lives? Would you help us to receive the deep work of transformation that the Holy Spirit longs to accomplish in our hearts and in our minds? Would you help us, God, to be new people, new creations in the kingdom of God? Would we partner with the Holy Spirit to see that renewal come both in our lives and in our families and in our world? Jesus, we love you. And we ask that you would help us to love you more. And we pray it all tonight in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.